Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Click, click, click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best, whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smartwater Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. The United States of America officially has a new president. Donald Trump is gone. Joe Biden is in office. Uh, things for uh, at least a lot of Americans and a lot of uh, people around the world who weren't big fans of Donald Trump, uh, which is to say most people in most other countries, uh, are looking up. Uh, but are they actually? And, and just how significant will Biden's new foreign policy be for the world? That's what we're going to talk about today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Zach Beecham, here as always with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hi, team. Hey. The first Worldly podcast of the not-Trump administration. It's a, it's a whole new era. It's crazy, right? Oh my God, that's, that is true. I mean, We've I've only working- ever done this show in the Trump administration. I've been working at Ed Vox since the Obama era, obviously. So I, since we started. So like in my mind, our career spans through back when Obama was president. But you're right. Like we started the show during Trump. It, this has just been, this has been the Trump show. It's for a whole really new long world, time. guys. I'm not going to sing it, but I want to. Yeah, I know. No, don't do it. Don't do it. Whatever you're thinking. We, we probably I, don't sure even have the is. rights to it, honestly. We probably don't, have to go yeah. through legal. It's like a whole thing. <laughs> I'll, I'll just do Jingle Bells. Great, uh, no, perfect. Uh, no, how about no singing from Alex? Can, uh, we, can we agree on no singing from Alex? I will mostly adhere to that situation. Okay. All right. Uh, listeners, you will thank me for this. Uh, trust me. Considering he was doing some little dicky freestyle thing before the show started while we were all waiting. That and and trust me. You You're welcome, America. Me. Look, let's talk about let's let's talk about Joe Biden. Um, <laughs> he is president now. He has already done some stuff when it comes to foreign policy. Some of which, you know, he he ended the Muslim ban uh, almost immediately, which is immigration policy, but I think significantly foreign policy uh, in a lot of ways. He re-entered uh, the Paris Climate Accords and the World Health Organization, which Trump was trying to withdraw the United States from. Uh, I think both of which are fairly significant moves that can be done immediately. Uh, his administration has expressed interest in uh, getting back into the Iran nuclear deal, and the Iranians have reciprocated. Ooh, Alex is going to have a take on that in a minute. Let's, uh, you know, these are these are, I think, fairly significant early moves. The first three, obviously, are actual moves, and the the fourth one is hypothetical. But it it strikes me that we are seeing a lot of what seemed like the Trump legacy being turned around and ended fairly quickly. I mean, I think you're seeing some moves to reverse the Trump legacy, but it's going to take a while to actually do it, right? It, uh, yeah, you can rejoin Paris, you can get back into the World Health Organization, but how do you actually get allies back on board? How do you reenter the Iran deal, which I know we'll talk about in a bit? 
how do you actually uh, deal with China? So far, you actually have Biden folks before, you know, during confirmation hearings and before basically say that Trump's approach was right, or at least the, the thrust of it was correct. Um, I think what we're seeing at the moment is where there was a clear break from the Trump years. Um, you're seeing Biden make make swift movements in that. And part of it is because executive actions are, are possible and because the president has a lot of uh, agency when it comes to foreign policy. But you're you are seeing a bit of a waiting game already, and 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 officials are are making this pretty clear that they're not going to make any rash moves. They're going to see how things are playing out. Like you're not seeing at the moment a complete dismantling of the tariffs, right, uh, placed on China and other places. That's something Biden could have basically done already. Um, it's it's a wait and see game. But I think there were already some clear areas where Biden had promised during the campaign that he wanted to make some changes, and that's what we've already seen in the first 24 hours. Yeah, I mean, you know, to be fair, uh, he has a lot uh, on his plate. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, he, you know, he signed, what, something like 17 executive orders yesterday. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I think there's no there's no way he's going to, you know, completely dismantle everything that the Trump administration did in, you know, in the first day or even the first 100 days. And But I think your, your point is a good one that it doesn't also necessarily mean that he's going to dismantle some things, right? Um, like you said on China... I mean, the Biden camp has come around, you know, pretty much, you know, throughout the campaign until now to be much tougher on China, I think for two reasons, in part because it was, you know, a, a good way to, you know, compete against Trump, because I think, you know, Trump's kind of policies toward, you know, being tougher on China and making things, you know, a more even playing field for the U.S. This was certainly popular, um, you know, among voters. But I think also because in part there are many advisors and potentially even Biden himself who truly think that it's important to kind of push harder on China, both militarily and and on trade. You know, it's not something that is new that the U.S. wanted to, you know, get China to come on side for a lot of things in terms of kind of global governance, um, trade, you know, making things more fair, making sure that they don't steal intellectual property and things like that. The, the thing is that the Obama administration and previous administrations did was kind of hoping that by, you know, encouraging democracy, uh, that Beijing would kind of naturally become a better player. And Trump was obviously just kind of flip that on his head and said, no, we're just going to push them hard. And I think, you know, the Biden administration certainly sees that as, as something to continue. But yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any way that, you know, that we're going to see a massive kind of change in, in serious kind of policy, you know, areas right this second. Well, I think the China issue is really interesting um, and really important, obviously, right? The world's two largest economies uh, are how they relate to each other is hugely significant. So I want to drill into it for a little bit, right? So there, there are some reasons to think that things will be the same for that Jen was just articulating, partly stemming from the fact that in general, there's been a real shift in the DC consensus about how to think about China in the past few years. And not just because of things that the Trump administration has done, but because of things that China has done. Right. I and, and I can say this personally, that the the campaign of genocide is I think the Trump administration rightly labeled it as one of their last foreign policy acts in office. Uh, it really transformed my vision of, of how to think about and relate to the Chinese government, right? While China is very, very important and you can't just blacklist them from the international economy in the way that you could to a place like North Korea, um, you need to deal with them. This is also a regime that is committing one of the worst atrocities that we've seen in the young 21st century. And that requires a fundamental rethinking. Uh, just on pure human rights grounds as to how we relate to China. 
on the flip side of that, and by the way, I don't think that attitude is just me. I think that's shared among a lot of foreign policy professionals um, in Washington. Um, on the flip side of that, you have a Biden administration that's deeply concerned with climate change. You have former Secretary of State John Kerry serving as the lead climate envoy internationally. And Kerry is almost certainly going to press for focusing on climate in relations with China, which is also hugely important, right? But what's awful about the China problem right now is that you have all of these different competing interests, all of which are hugely significant. The trade war that Trump started, I don't think will continue in its current form. Uh, but you do have, as Jen was just mentioning, huge problems with the way that China's economic practices affect global competitiveness and fairness, American jobs, et cetera, that need to be dealt with. Uh, you also can't, can't be so tough on China that they're not interested in cooperating with the U.S. when it comes to preventing climate change that could literally light the world on fire. You also don't want to let China get away with what amounts to the extermination of a culture. And so I, these are really, really hard things to balance against each other. And I don't envy the Biden administration's job in trying to do it. I think that the Trump administration did some things right, did other things not so right. The trade war was like, you know, they tried to get after real problems, but did so in a truly catastrophic way. So now I just, I just don't know how, to, how the Biden people are going to calibrate this going forward. So this is a tough one and something I've been thinking about for a while. Um, in a way, the Trump administration had it easier with China because its China policy was effectively just do the trade war. Um, and that's easy to coordinate when you're just you're not even triangulating. You're just doing that one thing. Um, Ill-conceived, poorly executed. Uh, but, you know, the, the focus of the U.S. government was how do we basically change everything about the U.S.-China trade relationship? That was the, the thrust of the China policy. And for Pompeo to uh, come out and then label what's happening in Xinjiang a genocide on the last day, um, while I think we all agree that, there, that that was the correct call, and even Tony Blinken, the incoming Secretary of State for Biden, agreed with that sentiment— uh, to do it on the last day, show that that really was sort of a, a parting shot and, you know, le leaving the consequences of that in Biden's lap more so than perhaps a, a true conviction. Uh, my concern with the Biden team when it comes to China is um, twofold. The first is the policy as I know it for now, or at least the tactic, um, is, well, we're just going to get a bunch of allies and countries together and we're going to put pressure on China in a, in a sort of multilateral way and they'll have no choice but to come to the table and negotiate on things like Xinjiang and climate and all that. And that could work. Um, and that's clearly a more powerful stance than uh, what Trump did, which is unilateral. But, you know, allies have their own thoughts too. You're already seeing in Europe, for example, that they're not as willing to be as tough on China on trade and, and things like 5G and, and, and other areas. Uh, the U.S. was the first to come out to call China uh, um, China's treatment of the Uyghurs a genocide, so it's unclear if other countries will come out and do the same, although now it seems like they might. Uh, and, of course, other countries just have their own interests and on climate, and they might prioritize climate things over trade stuff uh, in the U.S. So that's going to be hard to, to coordinate, and uh, especially when you have different differing power centers between Blinken and Kerry and, and Biden and, and a whole bunch of other people. Um, and Kurt Campbell, who's going to be the Asia czar, um, that's just going to be tough. So that's sort of one part uh, on the allies piece. And the second part, which I just alluded to, is the power centers. I'm I'm concerned um, that Biden has amounted 
um, so much firepower and so much ego within the White House and the State Department, all with very differing views of how to deal with China and other foreign policy issues. That hashtag swagger. Yeah, well, they already took down the swagger posters at the State yeah, Department. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but um, that that I'm concerned that there actually will be a coordination of policy. Granted, these are professionals and 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 they do this on in living, but. You know, John Kerry's known for going rogue. Uh, Kurt Campbell, uh, the Asia czar, is um, pretty ideological on how he feels about China. He's written articles with now the senior advisor to the whoever the secretary of defense will be, very likely Lloyd Austin. Um, and that guy is Eli Ratner, who, who have said, like, the U.S. has gotten China wrong for years. And so that now needs to have a much tougher, even more militarist stance toward China. And then you've got Biden, who's all over the place. So uh I don't know how this is going to go. I do feel like China at this moment um, is, of course, unhappy with the U.S. after the genocide declaration and, and all of that with the trade. Um, and so I just don't know how, how they kind of come out of the gates with China. And, and I don't think it's a surprise that that will be left for probably um, early February when the Biden team has said they're going to start doing a bunch more stuff on foreign policy. Yeah, Alex, I'm glad that you mentioned the kind of last ditch nature of the, you know, the kind of parting shot of the genocide declaration, um, because, you know, we've been paying a lot of attention to the inauguration this week and everything. But the Trump administration, in particular, Pompeo, uh, was really busy doing a, a flurry of kind of last minute activity on foreign policy. Um, I think most people looked at it and kind of saw it as him essentially, well, for various reasons, potentially for his own political future and trying to kind of set himself up as a potential, you know, presidential run in the future, but also, you know, to try to kind of put Biden, not necessarily in a jam, but to try to put policies in place that would then take it, you know, take Biden, you know, more time and effort and potentially political capital to reverse. So, you know, one being the, the genocide declaration. Um, and you remember, they were also sending Kelly Kraft, the US ambassador to the UN under the Trump administration to Taiwan. Um, that was going to be, you know, a really big dramatic, you know, step. Uh, Taiwan is not part of the United Nations because of the, you know, U.S. kind of one China policy. Uh, we, you know, agreed to let Beijing be the sole representative of China. Um, and, you know, they canceled that at the last minute because of, you know, I think issues around the transition and not wanting to look like we were st they were still doing foreign policy up to the last second, given all of the drama here at home with transfer power issues. But, you know, that was going to be, you know, even the fact that they were going to do that was something that China was really angry about. And then, you know, in response, we also saw, I think, and this is an important thing to, to mention, that China just put sanctions on a whole bunch of outgoing Trump administration officials, which is a really big deal. So they put sanctions on Mike Pompeo, on, I believe, Kelly Kraft, on Peter Navarro, who's the trade advisor, on Robert O'Brien, who was the national security advisor, and a few other people. Um, John Bolton. Bolton, Steve Bannon, yeah. And I don't think that's a small thing, right? It means that, you know, not only can they not enter, you know, mainland China or Hong Kong and Macau, they also can't do business with China. And they can't do, you know, companies who are associated with them can't do business in China, which is a big deal for a lot of these people who want to go into, you know, potentially, you know, industry type jobs that former officials tend to go into, you know, and I, I don't bring this up because I, it's like, oh, poor Mike Pompeo, he can't make money doing business. That's, that's not the point here. I think the point is, you know, the reason for sanctions is to obviously change policy in another country. That's that's the goal or to punish for doing things. And I think the potential for this, the U.S. uses these. I'm not saying that, you know, we're we're innocent in doing that. But I think the point 
of China doing this is to try to, you know, make it clear to U.S. officials that there's a line you can't cross and we will literally sanction your officials if you do this. You know, U.S. has been sanctioning Chinese officials over Xinjiang. But China said, basically, you're violating our sovereignty. So we're going to do this back to you. And I think that could potentially have a chilling effect, you know, on future moves on China. Now, I would hope that the Biden administration wouldn't bow to that, right, and wouldn't be scared of that. But you never know, right? It's it's a very serious move. Biden has already basically said that he didn't think that that was appropriate. He didn't, you know, didn't appreciate that. Um, so I think, you know, just going in... He didn't appreciate that. That's really <laughs> right, funny he, phrasing. You know, I mean, it's, it's like, the... I don't, I don't like it. I don't, I don't appreciate that. I wish you that. didn't do that. <laughs> Sorry, I, I don't have the exact language, so I'm just paraphrasing here. Biden's <laughs> kind of folksy. I don't know. <laughs> I think they said unproductive and something like that. Yeah, I mean, it was pretty, like, it wasn't like, ah, fiery, like, you know, refutation. Fire but, and fury yeah. coming down on Beijing. <laughs> but I think the point here is that you know, going into into the Biden administration, they're already in a situation where tensions with China are, are, are pretty high. Like the, even in just the last few days, things have kind of escalated. So I think they're going to have to deal with that. And in part, that's because of the Trump administration's last, you know, minute moves. They also did things, you know, related to Cuba and kind of other policies, you know, declaring the Houthis in Yemen to be a terrorist organization. They made a lot of kind of moves in the shadows quickly that kind of got overlooked um, that I think actually are going to put the Biden administration in difficult positions in a lot of places. I think the point about sanctions is particularly interesting because this is something, as Jen, you just alluded to, the U.S. does to countries all the time, right? We love sanctioning specific top-level individuals uh, in part because denial of access to the U.S. economy is so important given how important the U.S. economy is to the global economy. China is now showing that it is uh, it thinks of itself, at least in part, as part of a multipolar world. Uh, right. They say things like that all the time. Uh, but this is an actual concrete action that shows them throwing their economic and geopolitical weight around in a way that the U.S. previously uh kind of thought was something that we did to others and was not done to us in any significant degree. Now, part of what makes American sanctions especially effective um, is when they get into secondary sanctions, right? And these aren't always targeted at individuals. Often they're targeted at institutions because, you know, uh, that means that if you do business with this particular individual group that we're targeting, then you will also be sanctioned, which cuts off, basically cuts off access to a large multilateral web of different financial and economic institutions. And it also basically enlists European partners uh, and and other advanced economy partners into being part of your sanctions regime. Uh, I don't know how much more effective in general U.S. foreign policy will be in a world where we're getting more uptake from these partners and we're not just trying to strong arm them in to cooperating with policies like this, right? Secondary sanctions are one example of a way that you can try to force your allies into going along with your policy, but you also they also tend to work better when they're done in conjunction with said allies who want to help enforce them. Um, so I think one of the the early themes in Biden's moves is an as an emphasis on multilateralism, on reengaging with international organizations and American partners, uh, and I wonder how that will affect not just the China issue, but in general, um, on on all sorts of different things, uh, the way that the new administration handles itself. One quick point I just wanted to add, and I agree. Um, you know, you mentioned like one of the reasons why China's sanctions and the U.S. sanctions like matter so much is because of their 
you know, large significance in in the global economy. Um, I think an interesting kind of comparison, something that didn't quite make as as much news when it happened, is Iran also announced that they were sanctioning President Trump himself and nine other officials, um, including <laughs> Bolton, Elliot Abrams. Bolton got a lot of sanctions <laughs> this week. Um, but, you know, what's interesting and the difference there is that, you know, it's not like the Iranian economy is this like global kind of network of banking and financial institutions that, you know, if you want to do business in the global economy, you essentially have to go through some of these institutions, right? So that's what makes it kind of a lot weaker. Like there's not going to have a ton of effect um, but the the reverse, when the U.S. sanctions Iranian officials and Iranian institutions, like you mentioned, you know, it really does cut them off. So I think, you know, seeing China doing this, it's part of what we talked about in in some previous episodes of, you know, China realizing that it can use its economic might to kind of throw its weight around and threaten other countries. You know, we talked about with Australia and cutting off, you know, trade relations and and things like that with Australia. Like it is, I think, if increasingly realizing that it has this kind of power and is is less, I guess, hesitant or more willing to use it, you know, fairly assertively. And I think that's an interesting dynamic that we're going to see going forward, especially as China becomes more kind of deeply integrated through Belt and Road and, and other initiatives in the global economy more concretely. So this conversation has prompted two ideas in my head. The first is actually you know, not everything that the Trump administration did towards the end was necessarily bad for Biden. Um, the 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 genocide declaration was something the team was probably going to do anyway. And so now, like, Biden can sort of have that um, and not necessarily have to put it on himself, which could lead to political costs. And if anything, he could, um, you know, leverage that designation in, in any way he wants. And two was uh, Trump withdrawing troops from Afghanistan and Iraq down to the 2,500 each I, in each country. I feel like Biden planned to do that uh, roughly anyway. So that's a big win. Now he doesn't have to suffer through the whole rigmarole and political and, and spend political capital on doing that himself. Thanks, Mike Pompeo. Thanks, Donald Trump. Yeah. I mean, I, I think on those two, at least, like the Biden team was probably, you know, high-fiving in the background. As to Iran, because we mentioned Iran, I'm uh, one of the things that Biden made pretty clear in the campaign was that he would bring the U.S. back into the deal um, that Trump withdrew America from in 2018, and he would do so on the condition that Iran came back into compliance with um, the nuclear restrictions. Most simply put, for those who, who need the refresher, it was uh, the Iran nuclear deal effectively lifted sanctions off of Iran in exchange for Iran maintain, you know, staying under certain caps of its nuclear development. So keeping down on enrichment, have fewer centrifuges, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, since the U.S. left the deal, Iran has, you know, gone through and blasted through those caps um, and is now moving closer, not close, but moving closer to um, a nuclear weapon that it has never officially said it seeks. But, you know, breakout time is, is definitely shorter than it was at the start of the Trump administration. Okay. Um, so Biden said, as long as Iran comes back into compliance... The U.S. will go back into the deal. And that is still the case. However, there was an expectation that Biden was going to move on this pretty quickly. And especially if he saw Iran, you know, kind of come back, as they said they would, um, you'd already start seeing a pretty fast motion into getting back into the deal. That does not look like what's going to happen. Um, three comments over the past couple of days from top Biden people make that pretty clear. One is April Haynes, who on Wednesday was confirmed as the director of national intelligence in her confirmation hearing, said we are a long ways, quote unquote, um, away from going back into the deal. Tony Blinken, the incoming secretary of state, 
uh, almost an identical quote, said we are a long ways away from that, something along those lines. Um, and both of them noting that, yes, we would also like to make part of this entire negotiation um, discussions about Iran's ballistic missile and uh, program and support for proxies. And then you had Jen Psaki, the press secretary, uh, on the first ever press conference for the Biden White House, um, reiterate those two comments. Uh, this is important. I mean, it is consistent with Biden's position in a sense. However, it does seem to delay a bit uh, the timeline that many people expected. And that's a problem when you consider that Iran is going through presidential elections this summer. And Hassan Rouhani, the current Iran president, basically said, actually, the U.S. has to move first before Iran does. And so there's very little time to actually move on this. And that could explain why the, the Biden team feels like, um, you know, there's going to be a delay, but there isn't much delay to be had. So my instinct, uh, and this is not backed up by actual evidence, just uh, like in terms of reporting, right? Just my my sense of, of what the view is among the kind of foreign policy circle that the Biden people travel in and what would make sense with their objectives is that they are setting up a harder line position than they actually want to embrace, right? I think that they want... And my understanding from for liberal foreign policy circles is they want to get back into compliance as soon as possible. Uh, the saying it'll take a long time and we want to get ballistic missiles done and so on certainly is a way of trying to get the Iranians to agree to more stuff. But I think the real issue is just a, is, is in part a chicken and an egg issue. Uh, right. Like who goes first? Both sides so far have said that we will come into compliance. And and Blinken said this at one point in his comments on the deal. Um, we will come into compliance when they come into compliance. Well, that's great, but it means that the other side has to go first. And that's what both sides are saying. So how do you negotiate joint reentry into compliance with the deal's provisions? Right. And that's a process of negotiation, which means if you're the Biden administration, you want to set out uh, some kind of harder line at the beginning. So then you end up making concessions to the Iranians. And maybe those concessions are just, uh, OK, let's go back into the deal under the initial terms and everybody is happy. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know if that'll happen quickly. That also depends on the ability of the two sides to communicate, which is not always especially strong when it comes to the United States and Iran. Uh, it's a complicated issue. Um, but I do think there's strong political will on both sides because it's basically mutually advantageous. Uh, from the perspective of the leading political actors in both sides to get back into the deal. Um, so I don't, I guess I'm not as pessimistic as you are, Alex, about the ability of of this issue to get resolved. To, to be clear, I wouldn't say I'm necessarily pessimistic. I would say that the, the initial indication from the team was we're going to do this quite fast because we've got other things to worry about. And now what I think is probably going to end up happening is um, they're going to push this down the line further than they initially indicated. And my instinct would be they're just going to end up in the Iran deal of yesteryear instead of pushing on other things because they got other stuff to worry about, the economy and COVID. And that will be sort of be good enough, let's say. Um, but when you have multiple members of your team saying, we're looking for more, we're looking for a tougher line, and you don't get that, you could count that as a negotiating tactic. I think that's a fair argument. Um, but it, some might see it, and I think fairly, as a, a step down and a rollback of, of an initial goal. So I'd say I, I kind of come down in, in between both uh, both of those sides. Um, I think to me, you know, one of the important things we talk about a lot on the show is like, you know, the concept of uh, the enemy gets a vote, right? And I think in this case, you know, Iran is is going to hear that. It's 
they're paying incredibly close attention uh, to to what everybody says in the administration. If you remember uh, a few months back, there was reporting that, you know, government uh, hacking accounts linked to Iran were trying to uh, basically get information both inside like the, the Biden camp and inside the Trump administration to try to essentially figure out, you know, where they stand on specific issues rather than, you know, hacking to to cause mischief. Um, and I think that's in part because Iran is literally just obsessed with trying to figure out where do people actually stand on this deal? You have to remember, you know, Iran has been really hard hit by both the coronavirus pandemic and the economic sanctions. Uh, so you know, they do have a huge incentive to get back in the deal. So, you know, I think one of the things to watch here is, you know, does Iran try to make a more dramatic move like, you know, ramping up production even further? Um, I, you know, I don't know if it would be necessarily the military side of things, you know, ramping up attacks on, you know, U.S. troops and allies in Iraq, things like that. But I could see them, you know, making some more dramatic moves uh, on the nuclear program to try to essentially force the Biden administration's hand. Like, oh, you want to take you want to take your time, do you? Well, we don't really have time because our economy is hurting. So we're going to do this and force your hand. Um, I think that's certainly a possible scenario. And and at that point, you know, the Biden administration does have a lot of stuff to deal with, right? And it could, I think, also be the case that they just literally are just like, we don't want to deal with this right now. <laughs> like, we'll just deal with you guys later. We've got other stuff. We've got bigger fish to fry. But again, you know, we talked about this with North Korea, too. You know, there are ways that other countries have to force your hand and to make you pay attention. And I think there is certainly a potential for Iran to kind of play that card. So we're going to take a quick break. Uh, and when we come back, we're going to pick up on a theme that I alluded to earlier about the way the Biden administration is uh, handling relationships with traditional American allies. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until that presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case. Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Welcome back, worldly listeners. We have been talking about the transition between Biden and Trump and what a new Biden administration is going to do when it comes to their foreign policy. We spent a lot of time in the first half talking about China and Iran, uh, two adversaries for the United States, sort of, uh, depending on how you think about China. Uh, but... Now I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about traditional American partners, at least in two regions of the world um, that we like to talk about on the show, Europe and the Middle East. Because uh, I think there's uh, almost immediately a degree of divergence in the way that the Biden people have been handling those two relationships. Uh, so when it comes to Europe, the Trump team had a very rocky relationship with uh, NATO and uh, the leading countries in NATO, uh, like France and Germany, less so with England, but we'll, we'll put the UK to the side for a second. Uh, the Biden administration already seems to be reaching out to them. Jo rejoining the Paris Climate Accords is not just 
uh, a climate change initiative. It's a big multilateral thing that, uh, well, not just France, but in general, America's advanced partners were really bought into. And the U.S. getting back into that, back in the WHO in general, is a real signal that it wants to work within the existing multilateral international framework that uh, this country has set up largely and uh, been a big guarantor of for many, many years. And that's something that Europeans just they just love to see it. On the flip side, the Trump administration has gotten really close to uh, some of America's Middle Eastern allies, most notably Israel and Saudi Arabia. Uh, They've had very tight relationships on a variety of issues. not just Iran, which they all bonded over their mutual hatred of, uh, but also more, you know, issues that were maybe closer to these countries' borders. The Trump administration has uh, enabled Israel's continuing and deepening occupation of the West Bank uh, with virtually no pushback. Uh, the Trump administration kind of let Saudi Arabia put the Jamal Khashoggi assassination, just skated under the rug and let them carry on with the Yemen war, in fact, supporting it. Now the Biden people have been talking about withdrawing U.S. support from the Yemen war. Israel is worried that it's going to start having to deal with an administration that's more committed to the traditional two-state paradigm, and so will be more critical of settlement activity. So it seems like while we're seeing a tightening of relationships between the United States and Europe under the new Biden administration, we're going to see some distancing between uh, Washington and Riyadh and Jerusalem. I'm curious uh, how you all think about this will play out on, on any of these different scores. I would just quickly add, since you mentioned Khashoggi, Avril Haines, the now director of national intelligence, uh, said that she would release an unclassified report about the Khashoggi murder. Um, so that's probably going to worsen Washington Riyadh ties um, the second it comes out. Um, I, I, I agree with your, with your general thrust there, Zach. I think it's important when talking about Europe that we distinguish something. I think Basically, anything east of Germany, Trump had a decent relationship with um, because despite his own inclinations towards Vladimir Putin and and being kind toward Russia, his administration was was historically tough on Russia with sanctions and, and, and a bunch of other actions. And that actually ingratiated a lot of Eastern European governments to the U.S., um, Poland and, 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 uh, and Hungary. But well, that was for probably other reasons. <laughs> but 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 either way, um, the, like Eastern Europe was roughly happy with the U.S. It's Western Europe, the Germanys, the Frances, the, those countries um, that were less pleased with the way uh, Trump handled foreign affairs, hurt the transatlantic economy. He, you know, didn't want to follow with climate change, tough on immigration, that kind of deal. Um, And so I do feel like Biden will improve relations with Western Europe and perhaps uh, weaken relations with Eastern Europe, although Biden will continue, I would assume, to be tough on Russia. And so perhaps that that bolsters that side. On the Middle East, I'm, I'm fascinated to see how all that plays out. I would imagine, as you alluded to, um, you know, the Saudi Arabia relationship gets worse um, Israel, maybe Biden and Netanyahu's years of working together helps that muddle through, but one could imagine, um, you know, that that not being enough. Although I have heard from enough Biden people now to say that they're not looking for a two-state solution here. They're not even going to come close to to attempting it. They're basically just going to try to bring things back to to an equilibrium in the sense of, you know, get it to a point where they could get back to talking as opposed to getting them talking. Um, And so that's a step down. Maybe that will cause less consternation. And the fact that Biden is trying to get back with Iran into the Iran deal, as we discussed earlier, could also sour relationships with with other Gulf countries. So... um, I, I agree. It was a bit of a, a recap of what you said, but I, as I'm thinking through it, um, it, it's fascinating to me that you will see a bit of a shift there, and it could completely complicate uh, what Biden aims to do. 
I would add finally that, you know, the fact that right now there's few troops in Iraq, fewer troops in Afghanistan, little desire to stay in the, in the Yemen war and, and um, proceed with more military operations there. In fact, Biden will announce that there will be a review of the counterterrorism missions in that region. It could be that America extricating itself from there, a deterioration in those Gulf relationships may just not matter. Biden may be like, all right, you know, haters going to hate, but I got other things to do. Yeah, one of the things that you mentioned, Alex, I think uh, I want to kind of highlight, um, which is the, the kind of what seems to be a lack of will or interest in really tackling you know, Middle East peace or, you know, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and situation that was presented kind of under the the Trump administration. Um, that's disappointing. I think to me, uh, one of the things, you know, that I, I, I think was commendable in a sense of the Trump administration um, on their part was that they did try to tackle that in a, you know, <laughs> comprehensive way. Now, the way they went about it, obviously, you know, putting Jared Kushner, who had to you know, read a couple books to catch up on the entire history of the conflict. Uh, you know, he I read, read some, 25 books. Okay. He read 25 books. How will we survive without him? But you know, we, we can make fun of that, that all we want. And, and you know, we there, will. <laughs> there are a lot of reasons too, but you know, I'm still struck by, you know, I, I heard him speak at a, at an event during the, the Trump administration, um, you know, to an audience of kind of DC middle East policy hands who had worked on Israel Palestine for years and there was just so much skepticism and kind of, you know, cynicism of the even, the, how dare you even try and like, whatever you think you're going to do is not going to work. And it was really kind of depressing to me and disturbing in some ways to see that because, you know, there hasn't been good movement uh, in that conflict for a long time. And something's got to give. And, you know, to their credit, the Trump administration did try to come in and go, let's try something different. Like, let's see what we can do. And they did, you know, make uh, changes. They they got, you know, normalization agreements that had been, you know, even John Kerry had said that that'll never happen until there's, you know, an agreement with the Palestinians. It's never, it's off the table. And then the Trump administration came in and, and did that. Now, you know, whether those things are good or bad for the Palestinians is something we've discussed on the show before. But I think the fact that the Biden administration is already signaling, like, eh, we're not even, we don't even expect to try to really get back to any kind of solution is really disappointing. And again, I understand that there's a lot going on, um, but the U.S. has traditionally been a really, you know, big player in trying to bring both sides to the table. I know the Palestinians are, are you know, cautiously hopeful that there will be a, a different approach from the Biden administration, that they won't be, you know, completely kind of discounted. Um, you know, they took themselves out of the negotiations, but because they said, you know, they realized that the Trump administration was pretty much all in on Israel's side. I think, you know, the Biden administration does have a lot of people in place who have experience with this. And I guess my fear is that it's going to revert back to the kind of DC consensus of, you know, just plodding along and we have to keep trying these things that haven't worked. Um, rather than trying to be bold and and try different things, and you know even if they don't work, but really trying to kind of rethink you know ways to make make that conflict resolve in a way that's you know at least fair and satisfactory to all sides. And I think for me, I just think that's that's unfortunate. Yeah, it's it's a really um, tricky situation um, in a lot of ways because one thing the Trump administration really did do is conclusively disprove a, a longstanding theory of Middle East geopolitics called linkage, 
which argued that the region's interlocking problems were basically the result of the Israel-Palestine conflict, or at least dependent on the Israel-Palestine conflict to be resolved. So until you had peace between those two countries, you couldn't you couldn't deal with the uh, lack of political relationships between Israel and uh, surrounding Arab states. You know, uh, problems with Iran couldn't be resolved, etc. There's a whole laundry list of, of explanations as to why this would be true, and it turns out it wasn't. Right, uh, the Trump people successfully galvanized um, or or really played upon pre-existing implicit ties between Israel and the Gulf states to to create an anti-Iran front in the region. They successfully pioneered normalization between Israel and a number of different Arab states, including some Gulf states. Uh, and so it it is just not the case that other problems in the region depend on brokering peace between Israel and the Palestinians. Simultaneously, the situation for the Palestinians has gotten worse. Right? Israel has deepened its occupation of the West Bank and Israeli human rights group B'Tselem just released a major landmark report arguing that the Israeli occupation is so interlinked with actual Israeli governance in the inter, in its internationally recognized borders that it's best understood as a system of uh, indefinite apartheid. I'm not sure I agree with those conclusions, but it's really striking. I know the B'Tselem people pretty well, and it's like really striking to hear them coming out and saying that uh, and making that the official position of what is one of the country's leading human rights organizations. Um, and so it just looks harder and harder to get to a place where you can imagine there being some kind of two-state solution. Not impossible, but harder. Simultaneously, the U.S. incentives for these linkage being false reasons uh, have made it less likely that any administration would prioritize this, especially when there's a series of huge challenges, not just in the Middle East, but uh, you know, in all these other places we've been talking about, Russia, China, um, we, there, we we barely even touched on Russia, actually, so far, you know, but serious, serious international issues in the pandemic, global economic recession slash depression. It's just not it doesn't seem like it's going to be a Biden priority, which is terrible for the Palestinians. Uh, but it also means that the U.S. may end up adapting an approach that it, the U.S. may end up adopting a Middle East approach that is neither uh, what the sort of Obama two that you would expect from a Biden administration, which really heavily prioritized negotiations between the Israelis and Palestinians uh, or trying to get them there, uh, but also not Trump, which was just let Israel do whatever it wants and uh, prioritize basically just being Israel's closest, bestest buddy in the Middle East. One last thing to kind of mention on that uh, before I move on is that you know, Israel is also going to its fourth round of elections uh, in a couple of months uh, in what, I guess, a little over a year or, or such. Um, in a very short time frame, they're now going to their fourth round of elections. Um, they are stuck in this kind of nonstop kind of stalemate that they keep having these elections and the outcome doesn't really seem to keep changing. And they're stuck in this weird place where nobody has, you know, the complete authority to to you know, the complete mandate to rule um, and to govern. And so, you know, there could potentially be a political shakeup there or it could potentially just end up in the same situation yet again. But um, I think a lot of, you know, the landscape in, in Israel, the political landscape is is shifting as well. So we could potentially see um, some movement there. I, the more I hear us talk about this, it reminds me sort of in general that one, I, I would argue the Biden team would be right to, to push um, the Israel-Palestine issue to to the back burner, not saying, you know, understanding full well the human cost of that, but 
and sort of the grander things. There are a lot of other things to worry about. Um, like, let's be clear about what the Biden team is not really committed to for the moment. They have not committed to um, Israel-Palestine. They have not committed to a, a, re a restart of the negotiations with North Korea. Um, in, 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 sorry, the, like the, the diplomatic showings and summits with North Korea. They've not agreed to a reset with Russia. They've not agreed to a, a massive sort of uh, reset of, of talks with China. They've not um, agreed to a lot of other pretty contentious things that would require a lot of political capital. And now they're even, as we mentioned, pushing off a bit of the Iran deal reentry. And what I think is happening in general, and, and by the way, they came, they came to those conclusions for, for myriad reasons, but it, it amounts to, for me, two items. One, um, of course, the focus on COVID and the need to have a global effort on that, and you don't really want to ruffle any feathers that you're doing as you're handling that issue. And the other is climate. Biden has made pretty clear that the climate change is the number one threat he wants to focus on. It is, for him, the biggest foreign policy issue. And for him, it permeates many other foreign policy issues. Um, and in his effect, we were talking about linkages, it's a different kind of linkage, but Biden is effectively going to link climate change to almost anything relating to America's foreign policy. And so if I'm the Biden team, I'm doing my best to keep all my like, you know, political cards in, in, in my treasure chest um, before I, I play them. Uh, and I think you know, they don't want to get bogged down in something that could inevitably fail, that could take a long time. They're doing their best to keep the slate open, um, to deal with those two major issues, and then just kind of, you know, keep those other plates spinning in the meantime. Uh, I don't know if that's an intentional strategy. I, I haven't heard them necessarily articulate that, but I think when you put it all together, that's a that's kind of the quote unquote grand strategy of the moment of this of this new administration. I, I think that's a perfect place to leave the episode because uh, it's a it's a really neat, interesting perspective through which to view the administration and what it's going to do. I mean, this is we're recording this on day two of Biden world. So we'll see how this all plays out over the course of the next four years. I want to thank our producer, Sophie Lalonde, for her excellent work on this episode. And I want to encourage all of you to rate, subscribe and review Worldly wherever you get your podcasts. Also, don't forget, we are doing a new and special kind of short form thing, which has some audio that you may not have heard from this episode in it. So if you're interested in, in that additional, essentially bonus worldly content for you regular listeners, go uh, check out Vox Quick Hits, which you can get wherever you get your podcasts on any of those different places I just named, and uh, listen to us talk some more. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. But that's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work.